I encourage you to grab your Bible and open up to Romans chapter 8, and we're going to look this morning at some of the remaining verses in Romans chapter 8 that I trust will be an encouragement to your soul. I was on a call this week with a group of pastors to discuss this topic, how do we persevere through a long-term trial? How do we persevere through long bouts of suffering? As the individual who was leading the discussion described uh, their long-term trials over the past 15 or so years, uh, a multitude of trials that kind of compounded, all of them incredibly weighty and significant. He encouraged us who are on the call to think about and try to answer this question, which I want to pose to you now. What truths have helped you endure long-term trials and suffering? What truths have helped you endure long-term trials and suffering? And that's such an important question because the truth is that trials and suffering They have a way of shaking our confidence and security. They have a way of disrupting our lives, of stealing our joy, of causing us to question what we have formally believed to be true, even true about God. Is God really good? Is God really in control? Does He even care about me? Will He ever help me? In the midst of suffering, we can be overcome, you see, with fear and doubt. And the Apostle Paul knows that. He understands what trials and suffering can do even to the strongest and most mature of Christians. They can cause fear and doubt to creep in. And once that happens, who knows how that can spiral out of control. It's been said that fear is kind of like a mushroom. It grows in the dark. What truths help you endure long-term trials and suffering? If you were to ask the Apostle Paul that question, his answer would be Romans chapter 8. And specifically, he would point us to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. We're going to read that now together, and then we're going to look at the first four verses this morning. Here's what Paul says, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the Apostle Paul's answer. This is the truth that can help us endure suffering and trials of any length or span. And here, what Paul does to help us is he asks essentially five rhetorical questions. Who, 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 who? He continually draws our attention to these questions, and they're designed to both expose and to address our fears and our doubts And he is, in doing this, he is defiantly challenging our fears and our doubts. And he's pressing the truth into our heart. He's punching it into the depths of our soul. And the truth that he he presses in, the truth that grounds our security and quiets our fears, if you were to kind of give it a label, he says essentially to us this, listen, you want to know the truth that grounds you, that secures you, that can wipe away your fears and your doubts? It's this, the work of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel itself. And I want to show you three truths related to the work of Christ that can strip away our fears and our doubts. In fact, look at this first. We have no reason to fear because in Christ we have the ultimate protection. He begins in verse 31 and he says, what then shall we say to these things? So the first question we need to ask is, well, what are these things that Paul is referring to? You see, Paul is making a bit of a summary statement here in saying this. It's a summary of all that he's, he's just said in Romans chapter 8 in particular, but really in the entire book leading up to this place. But he's coming to a, a climax here in his argument. He's presented to us all of these magnificent doctrinal truths and facts, and now he wants us to see how these are supposed to practically affect the way we live our life, and specifically how they are supposed to wipe away our fears and our doubts. These things specifically refer to God's sovereign work in our salvation. He's pulling us back into the the truths that we looked at last week, where we looked at this, this golden chain in our salvation, that God, He foreknew us before we were ever born, before anything was ever created. He loved us, and He predestined us. He prepared us for a destiny with Him in glory. And so He called us to Himself with this effectual calling that could not be resisted. And in so doing, we, by His grace, believed on the gospel and were justified in that moment, made perfectly righteous, just as if we never sinned and just as if we always obeyed, perfectly acceptable to God. And then the golden chain is completed with this reality. We are also to be glorified, and it is as good as done for the believer. You see what he's saying? He's saying, in light of all these things, look at what God has done. Look how sovereign he is over your salvation. And in light of all of these things, look at what he says next in verse 31. 
Here's the truth that he's punching into your soul. If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, if all of these things are true about you, if this is your salvation, this foreknowledge and predestination and calling and justification and glorification, if that's all yours, here's what you can be assured of this morning. God is for you. That proves that he's for you. But you see, in our suffering, we can be inclined to question that reality and even to doubt that reality. We can be so overcome with fear because of our circumstances, because of our pain, whether that be physical, emotional. We can start doubting that God is for us and become focused on what is against us. And you see, it's in these moments that what Paul is doing here is so critical to understand. He's inviting us to actually talk to ourselves, to ask ourselves the hard questions, not to ignore the reality of suffering, not to ignore the reality of trials and pain, but instead to face them head on and to preach the truth of the gospel to ourselves. Dr. Martin Lowe-Jones has a great little book called A Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure. And in it, he writes about spiritual depression like this. He says it's real, spiritual depression, but one of the main reasons we get so little victory over it is because we listen to ourselves more than we talk to ourselves. I think that's absolutely true. You say, well, what truth do we need to speak most to ourselves when we're inclined to fear and doubt? Here it is. God is for us. God is for you. God is for me. And if God is for me, who can be against me? Why is this truth so important to grasp? Because the reality of your life and mine is this. There will be many things against us. Notice that he's not asking the question, is anything against you? In fact, as we read a little later in verse 35, he's going to give us a list of things that are against us, right? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. We're told as we read through Scripture that there are many things against us. And specifically, we're told that Satan is against us. Satan, the great enemy of God, is the enemy of God's people. The world is against us. The world under the power of sin and corruption. And by the way, even you in some ways are against you. Your own sin nature is against you. We've talked about that, that the indwelling presence of sin is against us. In fact, the world system and the devil wouldn't be so bad if it weren't for our sin nature, would it? You think about that. We would be far less inclined to succumb to temptation. It wouldn't be that appealing to us, but this sin nature in us is in one sense perhaps our greatest enemy. Augustine once said this, deliver me from my worst enemy, that wicked man, myself. Perhaps the devil is our greatest enemy, maybe rivaling our flesh. I, I love what Charles Spurgeon, in, in classic 
Spurgeon rhetoric and wit. He, he says it like this. He says, I do not know whether the devil is worse than the flesh, but I think I may put him down on par with it. For when the devil meets our flesh, the two shake hands and say, how does thou do, brother? There's so many things conspiring against us. Even our, our own flesh is conspiring against us and against the Spirit of God who dwells within us. And all of these things, they make us feel in some sense like the whole world is against us. And in these moments of, of suffering, when, when we feel like that, we feel alienated and, and isolated. We feel so alone. We feel so lost and confused. It can produce such great fear and doubt in our hearts, and it can actually lead us to the greatest fear of all. Maybe God is against me. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm not a child of God. And, and let me just remind you that, that that actually is the state of all humanity apart from Jesus Christ. It is to be not just against God, it is to be in this position where God is actively against us. Our sin has put us at odds with God. And yet, and yet consider this, listen, because God is also love, He has provided a substitutionary sacrifice so that we could be reconciled back to Him and God could be for us. And I want you to think of it like this, listen, if God were against you, it wouldn't matter who else was for you. I mean, who else could you have in your corner that could save you from God. But Paul wants us to see, listen, that if God is, is for you, who could be against you? If the greatest power in the universe is on your side, what power could stand against you? What power could defeat you? You see, the point that Paul is making is that these things, they are indeed against you, but none of these things will ever have final success over you. The world, the flesh, and the devil, none of these get the final say. None of them have the final word. Why? Because Christ Jesus is your champion. He is your victor. He is your captain. And He is your ultimate protection against the greatest of enemies. Even the, the bad that is formed against you by all of these enemies combined, He takes and He, as we saw last week, uses it for your good. I mean, there's so many awesome stories in the Bible that demonstrate this truth that God is, is for us, that that he, he is our victor, that He is our, our captain. And I was reading this past week in 2 Kings, and one of my favorite stories in, in the Old Testament, it's, it's a very brief account of this, but in 2 Kings 6.15, listen to what it says. Here's Israel. They're surrounded by, by their, their enemies, and the enemy army is around them and, and looks like going to be victorious over them. And the servant of, a, of the man of God rose early in the morning, it says, and he went out, and behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. It looks humanly 
hopeless. They are utterly helpless and powerless. And then it says this, the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? There's fear and there's doubt. And his master, Elisha, he said, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. And, and as you read the story, you, you go, we want to see, listen, that, that God just wipes out and obliterates this other army, showing his power. But I love this story because it illustrates for us some of the same things that Paul is pointing out to us in Romans chapter 8. Listen, that God is forced even when we don't see it, even when we don't understand it. When we think we're all alone and abandoned, God has never left us or forsaken us. When we're facing our greatest enemy and our greatest adversary, God is always standing there with us, and He is greater than any enemy we will ever face. All the angel armies in the world, in the universe, cannot compare, listen, to the greater protection that we have in Jesus Christ Himself. One day, Jesus Christ will wipe away every single enemy that stands against us, and he will do it, listen, 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 with a single word. The power of his voice alone. So what can our our enemies achieve if God is for us? Everything our enemies may, may try to throw at us will be grabbed by God and be used by Him to conform us into the very image of Christ and lead us safely into the very presence of Christ for all eternity. You feel like you're being opposed right now. You're suffering greatly. You're feeling alone. Whatever it is, anything that you're facing, like marshal all of the trials in your life together. Pull them all together. They cannot stand against God. Trust Him. And you see, it's, it's more than, than raw horsepower or raw firepower that Paul is referring to. He's pointing us beyond just simply the power of, of God in these ways, and he's pointing us toward the giving power of God, how generous God is. You see, you can doubt a lot of things about God, but you can never doubt this, that God is for you and He is your ultimate protection in Christ. But notice this secondly, we need not fear because in Christ we have the ultimate provision. This is the generosity of God on display. In verse 32, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We can be so paralyzed by fear. Oftentimes, we we fear we won't have what we need. Some of us are crippled by fear. Uh, We we spend a good portion of our day or our lives watching current events, watching news, commenting on the current events, and we begin to fear. 
We watch all, all of the trouble and all of the difficulty and all of the abuse of power and authority, and all of a sudden we begin to fear and doubt crowds in. Maybe you're looking at the current events today and you're asking, well, what, what, about, what, what about my rights and my freedoms? What if my rights and my freedoms get stripped away? What if, what if the economy ends up collapsing and we go into a, a, a Great Depression kind of situation? What if I lose my, my health, my physical health, or, or what if I use my future retirement that I've been working so hard for? Maybe you've already lost some of these things. Maybe you're, you're suffering right now wondering how you're going to make it to the next day. How can I know that God will provide for me? Well, Paul here presents to us an argument from the greater to the lesser. Says, how, how, how can you know that God will provide for me? Well, well, just look at this. God has already done the greatest thing. How much more so will he then do the lesser thing? He's already given you the most supreme, the most costly thing. How on earth can we doubt that he will give us the rest of what we need to live lives for His glory. But just maybe a quick reminder, let me ask this question, what is your greatest need? Maybe there's a variety of answers that could be thrown out for that, but biblically speaking, the greatest need you and I have is to be delivered from the wrath of God. It is to be saved from our sin, from the just wrath and anger of God against our sin. It is to be saved from the penalty of sin that we justly deserve. The Scripture says that if you do not believe in the Son, the wrath of God abides upon you. You see, while we were sinning against Him, God provided a substitute while we were enemies of God. And the language Paul uses here is actually an allusion back into the Old Testament, into a specific Old Testament event, the event of Abraham and Isaac. When God had told Abraham to take his one and only son, the son of his old age, the son of promise, the one that was going to eventually lead to bringing about the greater blessing for the entire world, his only son, his, his beloved son, God said, Abraham, I want, to take, I want you to take your son Isaac, and I want you to take him up the mountain, and I want you to bind him and put him on an altar, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. Abraham takes his son up the mountain. Isaac, surely confused by what's going on, follows, but he does so quietly. And the story itself is incredibly important from a New Testament perspective. You see, Isaac was an Old Testament picture or type of Jesus Christ. His willingness to obey, even at the cost of his own life, points us to the greater son of Abraham, the son of God, Jesus Christ, who willingly obeyed the Father to the point of giving his own life for us. You see, Abraham 
in Genesis 22, his, his faith was being tested by God. God was saying, Abraham, do you, do you love me more than you love the good gifts that I have given to you? Do you still trust me even when you don't understand what I'm asking you to do or why I'm asking you to do it? And as Abraham faithfully follows God, according to the story, he, he lifts the knife and God stops him dead in his tracks and he speaks to Abraham. He says, now I see that you love me for you have not withheld, you have not spared your only son from me. And Abraham turns and sees a ram that's caught in the thicket, the ram that would be the substitute that he would sacrifice in the place of his son. And this is where the story, the illusion, kind of breaks down. Because you see, Abraham's willingness to not spare his son is actually a picture also of God. Of God who did not and would not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, Paul says. And that idea that he, he didn't spare him the sense of this word is that, is that he let him have it. He, he gave it all to him, none of what he deserved, all of what we deserved, all of the, the wrath and the anger and the just punishment for sin was meted out upon the only true righteous Son of God. God pulled out all the stops. He didn't spare His own Son. It's the Isaiah 53 language. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. So here's the question, as, and this is what Paul is inviting us to do. He's calling us to look at the cross and ask ourselves this question. If God has already done the greatest thing for you, how much more so will He provide in every other way that you need? If God was willing to give you the costly, precious, eternally valuable, listen, Son of God for you, if He did that for you, how much will He not give you all things? The ultimate proof of His provision has already been seen in the giving of His Son. And I, I understand that this can be challenging for us because we look at our circumstances, we can be overcome by our circumstances, and how God provides for us, we, we don't always understand, it doesn't always look the way we want it to, the way we think it should, but as we saw last week, we don't see the end from the beginning. We don't see from God's perspective. We are not sovereign over the universe. We're not sovereign over any part of our lives. We don't always understand God's provision. And we can't put the pieces together. But the invitation again here is to look at the cross. And can you remember that, that at one point in your spiritual life, you know, prior to being saved, you looked at the cross and it didn't really make much sense to you? You didn't understand your own need of this provision. You thought you were fine, maybe in your good works. You thought you were fine based on your own merit, on your own self-righteousness. You didn't understand your very need for the provision of the cross You know, it's interesting, in, in heaven, we're all going to look back on the events of our life. We're, we're going to see the providential hand of God like we've never seen it before, and we're going to look at God and say, God, you did everything 
right. Everything. God, you didn't miss a single detail. God, God, even when I was confused, even when I, I felt alone, God, I can see you were right there. I can see what you were doing. God, you did everything right. Even the disciples, think about it as you read through the Gospels. To the disciples, the death of Jesus didn't make any sense. It seemed like a waste. It seemed unnecessary. And yet, it is the very source of our life and joy. Listen, loved ones, listen. If God is withholding something from you right now, it's not because, listen, this is what we think, it's not because He doesn't care. It's not because He isn't able. And it's not because God is stingy. God is is not stingy. He didn't spare his own son for you. I mean, to think that God is stingy after knowing the gospel, listen, it's kind of like, and this is such a meager illustration, it's like somebody, you know, buying you a million dollar, like a billionaire buying you a million dollar house. Actually, forget that. A million dollars, you might get a, like a half decent apartment right now for a million dollars. It's like a billionaire buying you a, a $50 million mansion on some island in the tropics. And when you get there, the, the front doorknob is missing. And, and you know, some of us think like, like, oh man, we've been given this incredibly valuable gift, and now if I go back to the person who gave it to me and say, hey, would you mind if I get, get a doorknob for the house? As if God's going to look at us and say, what? No way, you're, you're asking way too much. You see, God, God is the giver of all good gifts. God is a, a good father who loves to give good gifts to his children. And God has all of the resources necessary. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he dearly loves his children. You know what James says? James says, you do not have because you do not ask. And he qualifies it and says, but when you do ask, you just, you just ask for your own selfish motives. Listen, listen, if your motivation is the honor and glory of God, listen, when you come to God and you ask with right motives from the Father, listen, if you ask, if you ask for a, a fish, he's not going to give you a serpent. If you ask for a loaf of bread, he's not going to give you a rock. He's going to give you good gifts. Again, that's, that's not always what you think it ought to be, but it's always in every circumstance exactly what you need exactly what you need. And did you see what he says here? He, he says, how will he not also with him, with Jesus, graciously give us all things? You see, what, what does that mean exactly? What are the all things he's referring to? Well, it's, it's the very same thing we looked at last week when we talked about how God is working all things together for our good. In other words, God will give you all things necessary, listen, for your conformity to Jesus Christ, whether that's here or na- and now or later on in his very presence, conformity to Christ, everything for our good. In progressive conformity to Christ now, in fact, listen to what Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23. He says, so let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. 
One commentator said this about this idea of all things being ours. He said it includes the good and the bad, the pleasant and the painful, the joys and the disappointments, the health and the sickness, the contentment and the grief. In God's hands, it all serves us and makes us spiritually richer. All things in in perfect conformity to Christ later. In fact, listen to what Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All that is Christ's is ours. God is for us. He made the greatest provision for us while we were against Him. We need not doubt God's provision or fear that He will not give us exactly what we need. Let us ask with faith and confidence, believing that our Father is a good Father who loves to provide good gifts for His children to make them more like their Savior, Jesus Christ. Finally, look at this. We need not fear because in Christ we have the ultimate pardon. We have the ultimate pardon. These next two verses are essentially, I think, arguing the same thing. He says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And then this question, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect, he says, against God's chosen people, against God's beloved children? Who? Who can bring a charge? I don't know what you're thinking. I mean, you hear this, you're like, uh, Paul, um, are, are you sure you want to ask that question? I know quite a few people who could bring a charge against me right now. I know a lot of people who wouldn't have some very nice things to say about me because of some of the things I've done or or said, the way I've acted. Imagine for a moment, by the way, so much of this is framed in that courtroom kind of language, but imagine you're standing in a courtroom and every person you've ever offended or who knew something about your life of sin was paraded into the courtroom to testify against you. Person after person after person declaring what you have done in your worst moments, in your most sinful activities. And then imagine a whole other group of people came in to testify to the things that you didn't do that you should have done, things that you're not even aware of. But then imagine that God himself stood up to testify against you. He took the stand, and He revealed everything you have ever done or not done. Would any of us stand? Psalmist in Psalm 130 says it like this, Lord, if you should mark iniquity, who could stand? If you kept an account, Lord, if, if... If you were to show my account of sin, who could stand before you? But the psalm goes on to say this, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We can be so overcome with guilt, can't we? Some of you even, 
you're listening to this now, and, and the guilt is so overwhelming in your life, you just, you can't get over past sin. You've done some things that you just, you can't believe you, you did, and you, you don't believe there's any forgiveness for, and You're constantly trying to earn your way back into God's good grace. You live this legalistic kind of life, thinking that somehow if you're good enough, you can, you can undo the bad that you've done, or you can assuage your guilty conscience. You live in this place of condemnation. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? That's what he asks you to think about right now. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? There are two realities that he points us to that make sure no charge brought against God's elect will ever stick. The first is this, justification. Did you notice what he says? It is God who justifies. Whoever brings an accusation against you, whoever tries to condemn you, know this, it is God who has the final say. It is God who makes the final determination. It is God who is sovereign over your life, and to God you must submit your thoughts and your feelings. No one can bring a charge against you, listen, that God doesn't know about, that God can't deal with, and if you're in Christ, that God hasn't already dealt with in full. The accusations will come. We talked about this. They're going to come, and and they'll be constant. They'll never cease this side of eternity, eternity. And they come from a variety of places. They come from our own conscience, which constantly accuses us, which isn't always accurate, which wants to condemn us in our worst moments. It comes from the world who is leveling accusation after accusation, especially against God's children and God's people. And it comes from the devil himself. Somebody once said that that temptation is not the primary job of Satan, accusation is. And and we see this accusation, this accusatory activity in Revelation chapter 12, we're told that one of his titles is the accuser of the brothers, who day and night he accuses you before God. God. He stands in the presence of God, so to speak. God, is this really your child? This is one who loves, you love this one? Look at how unworthy they are. Look at how unrighteous they are. Look at, look at who they are. How can you love such a one? You should destroy this one. They're not worthy of you, God. So what does Satan think he's accomplishing? Satan's Satan's not an idiot. He he knows the saving work of Jesus Christ is perfect. He knows that the saving work of Jesus Christ cannot be reversed. He knows he can't undo it. What does he think he's accomplishing? Accusing us before the throne of God. Listen, though he cannot annul the verdict of God, he levels the accusations in order to rob your joy of assurance. Our flesh, again, it's so prone to fear and doubt, and Satan wants to incite that kind of thinking in us to cause us to believe that the cross could never be sufficient enough to cover your sins. He wants to take away your comfort in the gospel. 
He wants you to believe that you can, you can certainly lose your salvation. He wants you to believe that you can, you can lose the affection of God. You can lose your eternal standing with God. You can lose the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. He wants you to doubt it because he wants you to doubt like he did in the garden that God is good and that God is for you. But Paul says the exact opposite. Why does he do this? Because he knows, listen, he knows that a fearful, doubting Christian becomes an ineffective Christian. But look at the reverse of that. A secure Christian is a force to be reckoned with against the kingdom of darkness. A secure, you say, why is Paul giving us all this information? Listen, because he's strengthening the mission of the gospel. You and I, when we feel safe, when we know we are safe and secure in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are a force to be reckoned with. We stay on mission. No matter what comes against us, we know that God is for us and that God is accomplishing his mission through us, and so we press on. We power forward with the Spirit of God fueling us for His glory. The best thing you can do when Satan wants to accuse you is practice the Martin Luther strategy. Agree with him and tell him he doesn't even know the half of it, but tell him that you have been justified by God Himself. Every charge, every accusation, it falls to the ground because you have been declared justified. You are elect. It's as good as done. It will never be brought up and thrown in your face. You have been robed with the very righteousness of Christ that will never be taken away from you. He has died to pay for your sins. It cannot stand. You know what the crazy thing is? Any charge that's brought against you in the presence of God, it's like bringing a charge against Jesus Christ himself. It falls to the ground. It cannot stand, it will not stick, because the only thing God hears about his children is from his son. Look at verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who is it that condemns? Every sin that seeks to overwhelm you with guilt and condemnation, who is it that condemns? Every accusation brought against you, who is it that condemns? Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, he stands before the Father day and night, and every charge that comes against you, every form of condemnation that's raised against you, Jesus Christ stands in the gap, and he says, I paid for that. I paid for that. I paid for that. It is finished. It's over. There's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember how Paul started Romans 8? You say, well, I get that with my past sins. Before I came to Christ, they were forgiven. What about, what about the sins I commit right now? Listen to what 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not 
uh, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He is the only answer to our sin problem. Christ Jesus is raised from the dead. He was raised for our justification, but He is exalted to the right hand of the Father in the position of power and authority. And in that position of authority, He is interceding on our behalf. What is He doing? He is pleading the effectual sacrifice, the finished work of Himself on the cross. He pleads His own righteousness for you. We need not doubt our security or fear condemnation. Christ was condemned in our place that we might never be condemned again. We are saved, notice this again, this is so important in the gospel, we're saved by His death and we're saved by His life and His presence at the right hand of the Father demonstrates the surety and completeness of our atonement. Charles Hodge says it like this, Jesus continues to secure for His people by His life the benefits of His death. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 7.25 says it like this, consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. There will never be an end to the atonement on your behalf because there is never an end to Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have the ultimate pardon, the eternal pardon of God accomplished by the perfect work of Jesus Christ. What truths help you endure long-term trials? What truths strip away our doubts and fears? What truths can give you hope and joy and security? In Christ, we have ultimate protection. In Christ, we have ultimate provision. And in Christ, we have ultimate pardon. Right now, this very moment, loved one, listen, if you are in Christ, right now, this moment, Jesus Christ is standing before the throne of God, and He's pleading His own atoning work on your behalf. He stands as your payment for sin, once and for all. He stands as your perfect righteousness before the Father. Your name, your name is graven on His hands. Your name is written on His heart. You are one with Him and you cannot die. Your soul was purchased by His blood. Your life is hidden with Christ on high. We have no reason to fear. The work of Christ declares God is for us now and forevermore. Let's pray.